there like scrambling to go online to get the sermon. And what do you think happens when we try to go online to get the sermon? The wireless crashes. And then, of course, when I come up here to give the sermon, what happens to the mic? Oh, wait, I've got another one. First, the battery doesn't work, and then now the stand doesn't work. That's my signal. It's the devil. Preach with this thing because all of a sudden I start getting excited. How's how's that? Is that better? I really don't hear anything. Hello? It's on, but it's very light. Can you increase it a little bit? Okay. Is that fine for everyone? Does that work? A little higher or, or, or good? It's good? Okay. Well, with that, I think we definitely should open in prayer. If you can uh, bow your heads and close your eyes. Father, thank you, Lord, for um, this opportunity to preach. Uh, what, a, what a luxury, Lord, to be able to proclaim the glorious gospel of Christ and to be part of a tradition um, that starts with the prophets and with the apostles, Lord, of proclaiming a life-giving gospel. Uh, Father, there's so many people hurting in the world, and there's so much loneliness in the world, and you have called us to be in community with the creator of the universe. And there's no relationship that can be as satisfying as to be with the ever-present God. So, Father, as we talk today, uh, may we be reminded of this, and may the power of the Spirit be in us as we receive the sermon and as the sermon's preached. In your name we pray and we give you thanks. Amen. It doesn't surprise me either that, of course, the PowerPoint's not going to work. Does anyone know Murphy's Law? You should know Murphy's Law. If something, you know, something can go wrong, it will go wrong, something like that. All right, so I'll start with, uh, with something I was going to say about putting the sermon together. You guys always know how, I mean, I'm always fascinated at how the Lord puts a sermon together, you know, and how, and how it's really like this passive activity on my part to just kind of receive. So, um, you know, during the past week or two, during the past week or two, um, I have had some questions at my job asking, you know, about, like, the end times and stuff like that, right? And I was caught off guard. I was like, oh, man, I forgot some of the stuff I learned in seminary. But then also, you know, my job has been working with, like, some of these movies that have been coming out. Like, it's been really popular, apparently, lately, to talk about the rapture, you know, and about the end times and, and stuff like that. So, you know, I go to today's text, and, what, and what's the section in Mark that we're supposed to be looking at? Chapter 13, which is talking about this very topic. Uh, but what I thought was what I thought was really interesting is when I went to go share this morning about today's sermon, and I shared it on my Facebook. This was the picture that popped up, right? But but do you see what's right over his shoulder? You, maybe you can't read it, but it says the rapture was pushed to October. So blah blah blah, and it's some ad, and it's basically making fun of a, a gentleman called um, Harold Camping. But we'll touch on him later. But 
I just think it was so interesting that we were talking about this subject, and this picture would just pop out, and uh, you know, I had all these discussions at work, and we had this kind of climate where people are you know, talking about the end times and the rapture. So regarding um, this over here, you know, sleeping during the sermon, how many of you guys have fallen asleep during my sermon? I'm just kidding. You don't have to raise your hand. Right? You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to raise your hand because I know. I, I see exactly who it is that's falling asleep during the sermon, and then I write your name down, and then I, and then I don't pray for you. No, I'm just kidding. I actually can't even notice because I get in my own little world. But, you know, sleeping during the sermon. Okay, I, I, don't, I want you not to fall asleep during the sermon. All right? You'll see what I mean when I say sleeping during the sermon. It may not be exactly what you think, but I will ask you, in order to learn the definition that I'm trying to propose to tell you what I mean by falling asleep during the sermon, you really need to not physically fall asleep during the sermon, so you should do that too. Otherwise, you're not going to get it. So today we're going to talk about sleeping during the sermon and uh, sleeping in, in a wider array as it pertains to our text. So the central truth of today's um, sermon is that we will ask and answer the question, when am I supposed to be a disciple? When am I supposed to be a disciple? So, I I haven't been at the pulpit for a couple months. So I'm going to assume a lot of people forgot, but I'm not going to do a long, you know, uh, uh, summary of what we've been talking about. But you guys may have remembered I've been preaching through the Gospel of Mark, and the main picture that we've been using is the picture of what? Punctuation marks. And punctuation marks are those things you put in a sentence. So the first punctuation we had was the period, and that's kind of like, you know, going full round circle, and that was just the introduction to, this, to, the, to the series. And then we talked about quotation marks and how quotation marks are used like in a narrative to communicate, to identify who's talking. And then we used what mark? The last mark we talked about was the question mark. Yeah. And the question mark, we had three sermons that looked about discipleship. Do you guys remember some of the images that summarize discipleship? Well, we have you know, the question mark itself. You know, Jesus, he teaches about discipleship three times. The first time he's saying, you know, you have to follow him, and you have to carry your cross, and it's going to be really hard. There's going to be a lot of problems. So question mark helps you think of the problem. The second image we used was, probably should have drawn it, but do you remember like this thing here, the open bracket thing? And then equals, remember what that meant? Less equals more. And then the last sermon was, the last will be first, the omega and the alpha. So we looked at discipleship. That kind of helped us understand what discipleship is. It's about being a servant. It's about you know, loving other people more than yourself. It's about suffering on other people's behalf. And the last sermon I preached before this one was a sermon about, well, where's the power there to be a disciple come from? And the power came from the spirit and through prayer. But disciples are supposed to be you know, the people who are servants, you know, who are the last ones. Um, who consider themselves less and consider other people more, but they're empowered prayer for people. And we also talked about hypocrisy. So today we're going to look, we're going to continue the discussion on discipleship, but we're going to look at the time of being a disciple. Like what time are you supposed to be a disciple? During the sermon, right? Or can you just fall asleep during the sermon and then go be a disciple other times? And that's going to be our main question for today. So our, cent- our passage is Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 37. And the central truth of the text is that Mark wrote, Mark 13, 1 to 37. In order to detail Jesus' teaching on the last days and how this affects the wakefulness of disciples. So, 
to make sure you guys are awake, we're going to do some math, right? Yes, I get the Leonard's going to preach and we're going to do some like academic discipline. So we're going to do some math here. Does anyone want to? This is so dangerous. I'm going to provide the answers. You guys can try to do the answers in your head. Because I don't want someone to say something and be like, oh my gosh, I'm embarrassed now. 2 plus 3 times 4 equals, and you can write down the number in your head. Okay? Wait, be careful. Oh, man. <laughs> You're laughing. What is it? You can't laugh. You can't laugh. You. I got a laser pointer. You can't get away from me. Huh? No, no, no. Well, okay. So it equals 14. He's right. He equals 14. Okay, very good. You got lucky there. The reason why is, you know, there's a certain order. You got to do, like, what do you got to do first? Huh? Yeah, you got to do, there's a certain order in, 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 in math, right? Okay, okay. What about this one? It's not the same. Yeah, 20. Very good. Because what? You got these, what, what are these things here? Yeah, you got the parentheses, and the parentheses are, sell, are telling you, you got to do this first. All right, you guys are really good, so I'm making it even harder. Okay, what's this one? I know. Oh, my goodness. Math. Math. If we do 15 more minutes of math, I'm really going to fall asleep during the sermon. It's 80. 80. We got our 2 plus 3 is 5 times 16. 4 times 4. 80. And we'll do one more up there. What's that one? All right, this is the last one. This is the last one. This, this, one's, uh, this one's 400. But the reason why I show you this is this is an example of what parentheses do in mathematics. Right? It's basically telling you, hey, this is like a, a side comment. You've got to figure this out first before you get into the bigger picture. Do you think my math's wrong? I, I see a head showing. No. I double-checked. I used a calculator because I didn't want to come up here and be like, I'm wrong. Uh, but this one here, I mean, here we have two types of uh, brackets because the parentheses, the parentheses is part of the bracket family. We have the actual brackets and we have parentheses. So that's an example of how it's used in math. Right? An example of how it's used in history is you'll write, you know, uh, Leonard Ogoanaga, you know, grand pastor of so-and-so, blah, 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 and then they'll put like a little parenthesis and put like the day that he was born and the day he dies, which in my case would be a question mark, the death part, that is, right? Now, a way that they'll use it in programming, like when I'm building websites, you know, like, you know, this right here, what's this called? Yeah, like when you're writing in Word, when you italicize something, you're lucky, you just have to push the button, right? You push the button and it italicizes then in programming and coding, like when we're building websites, we actually have to do these little things. This is, and this is called nesting. This is what code looks like. Basically, you, this little I here is saying, all right, everything that's inside, I want you to italicize. And then you get to write the word, and then you have to close it off, just like you would with brackets. And basically, when you push the button, your computer is telling it to do this. So that's an example of programming. And now we'll use an example in English. So you can read, you can read along. I'll read this out loud. Parentheses may be nested, generally with one set, such as this, inside another set. This is not commonly used in formal writing, though sometimes other brackets, especially square brackets, will be used for one or more inner set of parentheses. In other words, secondary or even tertiary phrases can be found within the main parenthetical sentence. Wow, I mean, no one really writes like that. But the idea there is that what is a, a parentheses? What is a bracket? It's a way, basically, to make like this side comment during a sentence. So he's able to say something that may not be directly related to you know, the previous clauses as like a side comment. But it's important. He, want, he wants it to stand out. And that's exactly what Mark 13 is. Mark 13 is like this parenthesis in the Gospel of Mark. Because we've been reading about these questions 
right, about this whole discipleship thing, and then all of a sudden, the, the author takes, this, takes all this time in this whole chapter to talk about the end times, like out of nowhere. And that's what we're going to look at today. So if you want to turn on your Bibles or turn open your Bibles to Mark 13, verses 1 to 23, we have three chunks of text, and this is the first one, and this is the longest one. So as we read this, what are you not going to do? Fall asleep. Very good. I saw that coffee's up there. I forgot to bring mine. I hope I don't fall asleep during my sermon. So, local and worldwide events. So we have three sections. We're going to look at, at this end time passage. The end time passage is going to tell us something about local and worldwide events. Then it's going to tell us something about cosmic events. And then it's going to tell us about current events. But it's probably not like what you're thinking. I'm not going to be like, oh, over in Iraq right now, you have this guy, and he's doing this. It must be the end times. I mean, the church has done that for like 2,000 years. We're not going to do that. We're just going to look at the text. And we're going to read through this big chunk. So if you have your Bible, you can read in there. If not, you can read silently with me as I read it out loud. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. He's talking about Jerusalem. They're sitting on this, on this hillside looking at Jerusalem. Jesus is saying, Oh, yeah, you think those are pretty? Well, you know, where do you see what's going to happen? Then? And he continues in verse 3. And he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. And these are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever you are given, whatever, whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated for all for my sake, by hated by all for my sake, for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Hey, actually use the parentheses in there. I didn't notice that the first time. Or at least the way they translated it. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. 
For false Christs and false prophets will rise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. So how does the passage open? Jesus basically makes a prediction. And what's his prediction? The prediction is that the temple, this was the second temple uh, that was built, it was about twice the size of Solomon's, that that temple was going to be destroyed. He was going to say, so he was saying, I'm predicting that that temple is going to be destroyed. So, this is a really tough you know, set of passages, because you, Jesus, he is inserting these different images, right? And sometimes, you know, people will go and they'll say, wait a minute, you know, it says here that, the, you know, the, the, the temple is supposed to be destroyed, and there's supposed to be wars and famines and stuff like that, and then what do people start to do? It's just like, go on Google and start, like, Googling wars and famines, and they're like, oh my goodness, there's wars and famines right now, it's everywhere. Like, this is probably going to happen tomorrow. And people get really absorbed with, you know, this type of image here of, like, destruction and stuff. And every single time something bad happens, how do people respond? Ah, it's almost to the end. Like, the end is coming. And in a sense, they're correct, right? But what we're going to do first to help massage that out is we're going to note that in the passage itself, what we read, Jesus is talking about local and worldwide events. So the first event that he's talking about is a local one. Uh, you can also picture it, uh, another illustration to help is he's, he's going to be talking about uh, local and worldwide events. And then in the next section we'll look at, he's going to talk about cosmic events. Or you can look at it like he talks about events that are near and then events that are far away from the uh, apostles, the disciples' positions. So here he basically tells them something that's going to be happening near, something that's going to happen local. Literally, he's saying that the temple is going to be destroyed. And that's actually exactly what happens in 66 70, when Titus comes in, right, not the one in, in the Bible, but, uh, you know, one of these Roman rulers, he comes in, there's a resurrection, uh, you know, there's an insurrection, and what do you think he does? He destroys the second temple, and the second temple hasn't been rebuilt ever since. That's why when you go to Israel, they have the Temple Mount, you know, that's, um, that was the second temple, you know, and you, have, and you have that built in there, but it hasn't been rebuilt since. So Jesus here, he just makes this local prediction that this temple is going to be destroyed, and it's a near event, near to the um, disciples' uh, like historical vicinity. He also says in verse 4, when we, oh, and then in verse 4, the disciples ask him a question. This is the question that everyone asks whenever they get to like end time stuff. You know, when will it happen, and what are the signs? Then we get absorbed with those things. When will it happen, and what are the signs? And that's exactly what the disciples ask, and Jesus answers the question, but he focuses more on the second part. So verse 4, it says, this is what the disciples ask, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? So his answer deals primarily with that second part, but he does discuss some stuff from the first piece, you know, when he talks about the when. And then, in verses 5 to 23, you get all these different references to worldwide events. So some of the worldwide events is this persecution that's going to happen. And persecution has been a big theme throughout the Gospel of Mark. Like, we've noticed it in all these different places. But he mentions here, like, yes, this is something you can be expecting before, is that you can expect persecution. And you can expect um, that there's a need here for a universal evangelism. He says in verse, in verse, um, verse 9... But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, 
and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. So he has here a local prediction of this temple being destroyed. Then he has this prediction of these worldwide events of persecution and, um, and, and worldwide evangelism. And then he has, towards the end, the stuff that Hollywood really gets interested in, which is, if you look at verse 14, this discussion here about the abomination of desolation. That sounds like a character out of Lord of the Rings. Yeah? The, abomina- the abomination of desolation. And what's the abomination of desolation? It's basically the Antichrist coming and being where he doesn't belong. It's an abomination. Being where he doesn't belong. And there's so- the several ways people have interpreted this. Some think that it's like the temple. And it's literally the Antichrist is in this you know, new rebuilt temple. Other people think that it's... Uh, it's this individual who infiltrates the church because temple is used as, a, as an image for, for the church as well. But what we see here is we have these type of events. And right around this time of the Antichrist, you know, uh, performing this abomination and rising to power, we have this thing called the tribulation. And the tribulation, as you know, the verses show, it's just awful. It's a time of suffering and uh, almost reminiscence of, of like what happened in Noah's day. And there's a sense here of just immediacy. So like you can imagine, you know, in Noah's day, people woke up that morning who weren't going to be on the ark, and what do they do? They just went about their way. You know, started cleaning the dishes, and then all of a sudden the flood occurred. So that's the type of like, ur- ur- that's the type of urgency that's being set here. But the tone is that this event called the tribulation is going to occur before Jesus' second coming. Because Jesus here is teaching about the second coming that he's going to have. And you can imagine, for the disciples, they have no context for this whatsoever. They're, they're still trying to grasp that Jesus is going to die and, and, and be raised again. But now Jesus is teaching in this parenthesis. He just kind of goes off script and just starts teaching about this second coming. And those are the type of images that he gives them. So, one thing that the church does with those images is they focus on just this part and they don't look at the rest of the text. So they just focus on these local and these worldwide events. And, I mean, you can literally go throughout church history and you can find theologian after theologian who looked at their time and says, oh man, you know, the barbarians are coming into Rome. This is it. Like, this is the end. Tomorrow, you know, Jesus is going to return because the barbarians are coming and Rome is, you know, being destroyed. Right? And, then, and then that's how they interpret it. Or you can look at certain heretical groups that, uh, like, um, you know, Jehovah Witnesses, they had a prophecy that the second coming was going to happen in a certain time, in a certain place, and it never came about. But the most recent one that's a really good example of this kind of like this obsession on, you know, looking at, looking at these signs, because he just does give us signs, like we just looked at some of them, is this gentleman named Harold Camping. You guys remember 2011? It was everywhere, and I was just like, why? Like, why are they giving this guy this pulpit? Like, why, why is the media giving like, this pulpit? Because what's going to happen? What do you, you think is going to happen? It's going to make us all look like idiots. And that's exactly what happened. So remember that image that was in the beginning when we were in New York on the, on the train station? That image that I had up when I shared this stuff? It was basically like some company's ad saying, hey, because he had to change his prediction. The first one was false. And they said, oh, no, no, it's going to happen in October. And when he changed it, some smart advertising guys said, oh, yeah. 
let, you know, you know then that, that's what I do for a living. Oh, let's jump on that because there's a channel that we're going to get free media out of. So those, you know, those advertisers said, we're going to put an ad up that said, hey, you know, um, it's pushed back to October. You can still buy our product because Harold Camping says so. But the detriment to all that is that it really makes us look like a bunch of idiots. He's going in there trying to do math, you know, trying to do math. Not that Christians shouldn't do math, but he's trying to do math like with all these numbers in the Bible and say, this is the exact date. And they've been doing that, you know, Christians have been doing that for just like near 2,000 years now. The result was that a lot of people lost money because they donated millions of dollars thinking that after October, I'm not going to have anything because I'm not going to be here anymore. I'm going to be taken up. But even worse is that he just, you know, continued that image of Christians being idiots in the public sphere. You know? And of course, you know, you know, the, out, the outer society loves people like that. I mean, who is, who is the guy right now that makes Christians look worse than anybody else? Does anyone know who I'm talking about? Westboro Baptist you know, Church, the guy who goes and he pickets people's funerals and tells them that they're going to hell. Oh, the media loves that guy. They love guys like these because they make Christians look like a bunch of kooks. But in the defense of this passage, Jesus gives signs like this worldwide evangelism that's going to happen. And that this tribulation is going to occur. And the tribulation is going to suck. And then Jesus is going to come. Right? And right after this passage, he moves then from the local and worldwide events to these cosmic events. So you can see here in verse 24, this is how the passage opens up. This is Mark chapter 13, verse 30, uh, 24 to 31. But in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know what summer is near. You know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So the first thing he teaches us here is that there's going to be this cosmic event that's associated with Jesus coming. And it's going to be indistinguishable. You know, with these local and these worldwide events, these false prophets, the persecution the war and famine, those are things that you see all throughout history. But the image for that first section that he uses is like birth pains. Those contractions are going to get closer and closer together. And that's, and that's the sign. And now here he gives another even more blatant sign. It's that in addition, after this thing, the tribulation occurs, you're going to have this cosmic event that, you know, that the universe is going to be transformed. Right? And Jesus is going to come down indistinguishable upon the clouds. And as an image for this lesson of what that's going to be like, he provides us the fig tree. He, I, guess he, I guess Jesus liked figs, because he's always using the fig tree as an, as an illustration. But the illustration here with the fig tree is that what? When the leaves begin you know, to come about, that means the season's coming near. And so he's saying you know, that's another, another sign. But at the end of it, what is, his, what is the thing that he closes on when he talks about um, these local, worldwide, and then the cosmic signs. What's his focus on before he transitions to the next passage? His focus is in verse 31. 
where he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So before that, you know, the lesson of the fig tree is kind of just another illustration on you know, how this event's going to come about. It says it's coming about generation. This generation shall not pass. There's several you know, interpretations for that. Does it mean, you know, oh, it never, like, never happened with the, uh, the disciples. Like they didn't have the tribulation happen, so Jesus was a liar. No, people interpret it as referring to the church. You know, the church will not pass away or the Jewish people. But what we have here at the very end is Jesus' divinity again coming about. And Jesus basically says what? That his words, that the words of Jesus are more long-standing than creation itself. Which is just interesting. It's just another one of those references where Jesus is showing his divinity. Because how did God create the universe? With words. And Jesus in John is called the word of God. Now Jesus here is saying that his words are more everlasting than this creation that's taking, that, that took place and that's going to be redeemed. So, an image here uh, that people look at, like when they see the cosmic events, you know, when, when people got kind of obsessed with the local and worldwide events, you get people like uh, Harold Camping and you get, you know, certain heretical and heterodox opinions. But today, what's really popular is, you know, like rapture-type movies and stuff like that. And the one that most recently came out was the one by... Nicolas Cage, who I have no idea what Nicolas Cage is doing in a, in a Left Behind movie. But this was a remake of the original Left Behind movie. Uh, and, I mean, it makes sense, right? What do, what do moviegoers love? They love disaster films, right? Like, they love epic disaster films, like hurricanes. I hate it, because I've gone through a hurricane. Hurricanes, they're, they're terrible. Like, Hurricane Andrew, I had to sit in a closet for like 24 hours. It was awful. Everyone's house was gone. But, you know, people like it. Why do I think people like it? I think because with disaster flicks, what do you do when you're watching a disaster flick? You're saying, okay, if I was in that situation, what would I do? Like if I was stranded on that island, I loved Lost. Lost was super interesting. My mom and I would watch it. And why did I like Lost? Why did I like Lost? Because I was like, well, what would I do if I was on that island? You know, like what would I do if there was this cosmic flood? And you kind of see that probably with the popularity of zombie, of zombie films, too. People are like, well, what would I do if we got overrun by zombies? This is another style of disaster flick. But can you really get any bigger of a disaster flick than the tribulation? I mean, Hollywood saw that. like, oh, this is perfect. You know, there's Christians who will buy anything that you put a sticker to that is, is Christian, right? And, I mean, it's epic disaster film. So you have two movies that recently came out, Left Behind, and then you have this other one called The Remaining, which is a horror film of the rapture. Then you got like TV shows. I can't remember the name. Oh, The Leftovers. That's a TV show that's out, and it's like the same exact thing. What would you do if just 2% of the world's population disappeared? But the problem here is that I think a lot of Christians get this far like in the passage, and then they stop. And they're like, okay, we've got to keep our eyes open for these type of events. And Jesus is clear. He's saying, yeah, you want to stand guard. And he's saying that there are going to be signs that this event happens. But they usually stop here, and they don't focus as much on this next passage, which is the passage that I think is just critical. I mean, it's a passage that you're not going to see movies uh, being made for the public audience, and it's probably not the passage that Christians would want to watch movies of because they may not think that it's as exciting as global or cosmic disaster. But I think it's just absolutely beautiful. And that's our next passage, current events. So we had local and worldwide events, and we looked at some of those 
Jesus' prediction of the temple, that was a local example, and it literally happened. And interesting enough, because the disciples and you know, their descendants listened, um, they actually left to uh, the mountain, and they were spared of the disaster that came upon, uh, that came upon Jerusalem because you know, it was a literal prediction. Some of the other predictions are more, you know, worldwide, cosmic, you know, th- that worldwide evangelism, this wars and stuff. And Jesus says, you know, it's going to be like birth pains. They're going to get, you know, closer and closer together and more and more intense. Then when he goes over to the cosmic, he's using this whole recreation, Jesus coming down in the clouds, those type of images. But we also have this current event. And this one speaks directly into our context. The other one's saying, you know, be on guard, keep your eyes open. It's, you know, this is the type of signs you're going to see. And then we have this passage here in 32 to 37. And it reads as follows. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and he puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. So I once didn't get a job at, like teaching at a university because when it came to eschatology, this is the field of, of theology of the end times, the last things, um, it's just, it wasn't an area that I was just you know, that like, you know, to give you an example, there's some people who, when you talk to them about eschatology, this is a matter of orthodoxy. Like, if you don't believe in pre-trib, you know, pre-millennialism, then you are not a real Christian. Like, some people get that obsessive when it comes to this stuff. When in reality, it's what we call like a tertiary issue. You know, there's, a, there's a lot of disagreement in the church on, you know, what the ordering of it, uh, is of Jesus' coming, and you know, the, this thousand years of reign. But, that first passage, that was my, my position. My position was, yeah, okay, I get all these signs. Jesus gives me all these signs. But then at the end of it, he just tells me, but concerning like the day or the hour, the exact time, like forget about it. You're not going to know. These are some signs to get ready for it, but you will not know the day or the hour. So what happened with Harold Camping? He made four false predictions. He made Christians look like you know, a bunch of dummies in the world's fear. And he ultimately, before he died... He ultimately said, I should have listened to that passage. You know, at the end of the day, no one can. And he was incredibly sorry uh, from what he did to the church. So that's kind of the position I came down on. And you know, some people get that far and they'll stop there. And I think that's it's healthier. But that last section is, is the one that really intrigued me. And that's that image of staying awake. And that's another part that people will emphasize in this passage. But what I find interesting about that, you know, so putting the, uh, the time and, and the date aside, you know, you have him focusing on this state of being awake. So with our previous sermon, with the previous sermons and the previous chapters, what has been the main theme in our section of questions? The main theme of the section of questions was discipleship. What does discipleship look like? And then we asked, like, well, what empowers discipleship? Prayer. And now I think the reason why Jesus puts this parentheses of the end times in here, and there's other passages in the New Testament that treat it even deeper, and the Old Testament. This is a real 
concise summary, but it still feels weird in the Gospel of Mark, which is short, that he just spends all this time, is I think because this is another way for him to talk really about discipleship. Because that's what he's been talking about in all the prior chapters, and he's getting his disciples ready for him to leave. He's provided his third lesson on discipleship. Uh, The disciples were wrong three different times on important issues, and he made his third prediction on Jesus' return. And now here he comes, and he tells them, essentially, before we get to the final passages of the Gospel of Mark, stay awake. He tells them, stay awake. You're going to have these signs, but ultimately, I want you to stay awake. So, to summarize again everything that we looked at. We looked at chapter 13, and we looked at three different types of sections. The first section looked at these local and worldwide events that were connected with Jesus's, uh, before Jesus' coming. And there was local events like the destruction of the temple, which literally happened, and also pointed towards a bigger reality that we see with uh, the Antichrist coming and, and the, abomination, the abomination of desolation. You had this universal evangelism, you had this persecution... But in the end, these are really themes that he's been treating all throughout the gospel, you know, getting his disciples to be expectant of. Then with cosmic events, we had this whole transformation of the cosmos. Jesus' little second coming on the clouds. It's going to be clear as day. I mean, everyone's going to see it. It's going to be a public event. He's not going to you know, um, you know, you know, do it in a room where no one sees. No, it's going to be something that's going to be proclaimed to the world. And he provides the fig tree as an example of, look, you're going to know when you see it. Because just like you know, the leaves of the fig tree tell you that season's coming. But in that last section, he ultimately says, but no one's going to know the hour of the day, but I want you to be wakeful disciples. So what do I mean when I say uh, don't fall asleep? I put it there in parentheses, right? Don't fall asleep during the sermon. Is I'm not talking about physically falling asleep, right? Our first lesson on disciples, we looked at what does it mean to be an active disciple. And really at the end of it, it's serving is what, is what I mean. Serving God by serving man. Loving God by loving his, his creation. And Jesus says it in, in, in a bunch of different ways. And that's what that less equals more image is for. Or that, or that you know, uh, the omega equals the alpha. The last is the first. He provides all these different images to make sure that you get that, that that's what discipleship's about. Active discipleship. Actually doing things. The second one, when we talked about prayer, was, okay, and not only does it need to be active, but it needs to be empowered. And that was that lesson when we looked at uh, prayer and the importance of prayer and not being a hypocrite and how hip- hypocrisy breaks down communication. And this third one here, the emphasis is on being wakeful and hopeful disciples. So the reason why I think the end times ultimately resonates with believers is because this is where you're supposed to put your hope on. I mean, I always love it that um, you know, when, when, worship come, when the, uh, the praise team comes up here and they play... Like, again, like just how my sermons come together, I always hear things during the songs where I'm like, ah, that's awesome. Like, people need to listen to the lyrics, read the lyrics, because it's, it's almost like uh, it's, it's a lead way into the sermon. So one of the pieces that I grabbed this time was um, One Day He's Coming. Remember that one? One Day He's Coming, and it's going to be a glorious day. I mean, here, ultimately, one of the things that grounds discipleship is it's not hopeless, because it is hard. We saw that in his, in his lessons on discipleship. It involves carrying a cross. And who wants to carry a bloody, you know, splintery cross? And it's also hard to elevate people above yourself. I mean, who wants to do that? You're, you're almost your basic instinct is to serve yourself. But he gives us prayer to empower us, and then he gives us something that ultimately provides us hope. 
which is that one day he's going to return, and everything that we have here is going to be perceived as meaningless. Like I was listening to some Perry song on the radio, and I was like, man, she probably makes a lot of money, and she's really, really important and popular right now. But in the end of times, you know, it's going to be something that's going to be belittled in the cosmic perspective, and you get to be a participant in that. I mean, you get to have your hope and your security in that the same Jesus who resurrected from the grave told you that he's going to come back for you. And that ultimately he's going to come back to claim you. And that you get to experience but a fruit, but a grape from the vine of the deliciousness of communion with God. That, that, that wonder and beauty of your relationship with Christ, when you really begin to understand love and you really begin to understand forgiveness, that is but a grape from the vine of what you get to experience all of eternity. And that's what you get to ultimately put your hope in. Not in money, not in marriage, some themes that, you know, that Jesus had provided, but ultimately in this relationship. All those other things, marriage, money, become means to bring about that hope into the world. So what do I mean when I say don't fall asleep? When I say don't fall asleep during the sermon, what I'm trying to tell you is that Jesus wants you to be awake. He doesn't want to come on you and find you sleeping on the job. That's the image, ultimately. He doesn't want to come and find you doing nothing with what he's given you, with the empowerment that he's given you, right? with this luxury. He doesn't want you to fall asleep during the sermon, but he doesn't want you to fall asleep during the week. He wants you to be a disciple in everything you do. He doesn't want you to fall asleep with your kids. He doesn't want you to fall asleep with your spouse. And he doesn't want you to fall asleep while you're at work. He calls you to be a disciple. And you are able to serve in that matter because you have God as this image of this merciful love. And he's provided you with all these opportunities. So when he tells you don't fall asleep, heed those last words. Stay awake. In the sermon and out of the sermon. As you're in the world and as you're with your neighbor. So if you can close your head and bow your eyes. Father, we thank you that you um, have called us and that you have opened our eyes, Lord. As other passages in Scripture say, um, before we were believers, Lord, we were dead to our trespasses. And uh, we were co-partners with the prince of the air. But you have called us from a slumber that is depraved and eternal. That you have called us from death into glorious life. That you have called us not only into life, Lord, but to be, um, to be servants to you, Lord. And to bring and extend this life and this wonder and this beauty to our neighbor. Father, as Jesus is teaching here about discipleship, may we heed his words. He's been asking us all these questions, Father. Asking us, how do we consider ourselves in comparison with our neighbor? He's been asking us, Lord, ultimately... How do we look upon children, look upon those, Father, who can't return to us the favor? We saw with Luther in his illustration of the changing of the diapers, Lord. You give us the means to have hope in something that is so beyond anything we can ever gather here on earth. And that's your son, Father, your son, Jesus Christ, our ultimate hope. And we can look upon him and say, oh, Lord, oh, Father, one day he's coming, Lord. One glorious day he's coming and I will be his and he will be mine and I will be removed, Father, from the toxicity of sin and depravity, Lord, that humanity will be removed, Father, from seeing sin uh, propagated amongst himself, Lord, and that we get to be in all eternity with you. Father, I pray, Lord, that as um, they see themselves as disciples, that they may heed his word, Lord, 
and that they may stay awake. In your beloved name, we look upon the day of your return with great rejoicing and pray, Lord, that our wakefulness as disciples here now may reflect the wonder of that glory. In your name we pray and we give you thanks. Amen.